Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about just about anything we want to talk about with a certain focus on fame. I'm Jamie Berger. This is episode 54. My guest is Beth Lissick. Before we get to part two of my conversation with Beth, part one, you can find on, on our site. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's uh, We go deep into our 90s past in that episode and an incident in which I followed Beth around when I didn't know her. Uh, and we talk about that and about how to apologize properly and a lot of other things. But this episode is more light and fun and fluffy. Before I dive into our, our conversation, uh, part two of our conversation from back in December, I'd like to read for you an essay that is something I wrote many years ago, but that is tied to Beth Lissick. In the 90s, late 90s, Beth Lissick invited me to participate in what then I thought of as the biggest storytelling series around, because I was in San Francisco and the moth hadn't bloomed into the moth. Uh, it was called Porchlight, and she and Arlene Klatt uh, ran it and still do uh, periodically, even though Beth now lives on the East Coast. Anyway, she invited me to come tell a story. At the time, I had written a piece of fiction, a short story, and I had been thinking a lot about how that short story intersected with my life and experiences I was having in real life. And it was all kind of bouncing around in my head. And Porchlight, which took place at the wonderful Cafe du Nord in San Francisco, was a great way for me to get up and tell the story of that intersection. Porchlight, like the moth, is unscripted, not supposed to be memorized, and you get up and you tell your story in whatever allotted amount of time they give you. I don't remember at the time. So I did, and the story led to me writing an essay about, <laughs> about uh, you'll see. Uh, but it's, it gets a bit meta, and last year... I don't know, 15 years after the fact, I was asked to go perform at the anniversary party for uh, the podcast We Don't Even Know. It was a day-long festival in New York, and I couldn't think of anything to read except for the essay version of the, of the thing I performed years ago at Porchlight, except the trick was that the essay that has since been published in The Sun and online was, when I sat down to read it, to myself over 20 minutes long and my host for the performance in New York needed eight to 10 minutes. So what you're about to hear is an eight to 10 minute version of a 20 minute or more uh, short essay that if you'd like to read, I will have a link to on the episode page. I'd also like to say hello and thank you and welcome to our new hosts, Pippa.io. Uh, we're switching over from SoundCloud to Pippa for reasons that really aren't interesting enough to go into now, but they've been terrific so far with tons of personalized attention, and this is an unpaid, unsolicited first promo for them because they've been great so far. So if you're looking for a podcast host, check out Pippa.io. The essay is called Peep Show, and I'm going to tell you a couple things about it because in the condensed, conten condensed version you may get a little lost. It jumps from my childhood 
in Albany, New York, to my years in New York City in the 80s, to my years in San Francisco in the 90s and early 2000s. And telling you that should be enough to help you stay properly located in time and place. This is Peep Show. In the fall of 1997, when I lived in San Francisco, my friend G asked me to read at a benefit for a radical queer performance space. I am a heterosexual white man. I hemmed and hawed and tried to duck her invitation, but she wasn't having any my ex- but she wasn't having my excuses. The truth was, I wasn't eager to be the token straight white guy in the show, but I reluctantly accepted. As the event approached, I anxiously sifted through old grad school poems, pulling out the benign ones about my mother and a snowstorm, about a fondly remembered ex-girlfriend, about a long nighttime drive and hopeful thoughts of the future. Hey, I thought, leather-clad lesbians like mothers and ex-girlfriends and hopeful thoughts of the future, right? In the back of my mind, though, nudging at me, was something much riskier, a new short story called Close, the 1980s diary of a New York museum guard named Henry, a socially incapable, greasy-haired junior college dropout in his early 40s. Henry divides his time between home, work, and a Times Square peep show joint, where he's obsessed with a curvy Slav whose stage name is Nadja. The story includes several scenes of Henry participating in the only form of intimacy he knows, masturbating while, while masturbating while awkwardly touching Nadja's breasts through the eye-level porthole of the peep show booth. Close, on top of being potentially offensive and, in and of itself, exhibited first-hand knowledge of such venues that, until then, was my big, dirty secret. I grew up in Albany, New York, the only child of two lefty secular academics. Mom, a second-wave feminist English professor, Dad, a moral philosopher. At a very young age, I learned all about patriarchy, misogyny, and sexism, and grew up seeing myself as oppressor by default, my penis as a weapon of that oppression. Side note, after reading the essay that eventually got published, my mother was horrified to learn that that's what I had had taken in from my feminist upbringing. It, It certainly wasn't her attention. Okay, back in. A few years later, as a sensitive 80s guy, It put a real crimp in my enjoyment of, and probably performance at, sex. Of course, it also added immensely to the taboo, and thus the enticing rush and shame of porn and strippers. I stole my first copy of Hustler magazine from a friend's house in 8th grade. I still have the glossy cover of that magazine somewhere, with its picture of a devilish blonde in shiny red leather, head thrown back, mouth forming a shiny, perfect O. The look in her eyes isn't playboy soft focus come hither. It's straight up lust. The image, a thrilling combination of combative and submissive, contradicted everything I'd been taught. This woman was objectified and loving it. She didn't want to be made love to. She wanted, needed, to be fucked. This was so wrong, so confusing, and so damn hot. I discovered Times Square as a college freshman in 1982, toward the end of its live nude girls heyday, while walking one night with some friends after a Public Image Limited show at Roseland. 
My friends were already jaded New Yorkers, weren't even noticing where we were. I, a wide-eyed rube from upstate. After that night, I started guiltily hopping the subway downtown where I'd spent anxious hours lurking outside porn and peeps joints in the autumn cold, furtively glancing at the windows, then chickening out and hopping the one train right back uptown. Finally, one night, I had a couple of beers, got up my nerve, and walked into Show World on the corner of 42nd and 8th, right across from Port Authority. I remember fluorescent lights and Swedish erotica magazines with pictures of penetration right on the cover. A flashing live show arrow pointed up a flight of disco-lit stairs. I didn't go up that, upstairs that first night, but I did soon after to the booths that opened up to those live, nude girls. That first incursion was simultaneously unsatisfying, horribly guilt-inducing, and achingly thrilling. I practically sprinted away afterwards, repeating to myself, I'm a pig. I'm a bad, 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 bad person. I will never do that again. I'm a pig. I'm a bad, 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 bad person. Over and over, my secular humanist Hail Mary. Peep shows are undoubtedly commodified sexual interactions, and as such, antithetical to so much that I believed. But the privacy and balance of power gave some solace. I was alone, captive in my little confessional-like booth. The dancer could come over to my window or not, and she could, and sometimes would, walk away at any time. What I craved most eye contact from a performer, was rare. It was much more than a sexual thrill. It was spiritually fulfilling. A form of acceptance akin, I imagine, to, as I said, confession. In a way that can't be duplicated outside that odd, controlled space. Very few strippers would grant me the intimacy of more than a glance, though. Eye contact definitely wasn't in the job description. The peep show scenes in Close show how unhappy Henry is in his isolation, how badly he needs the human contact that he's incapable of in normal life, but looks for at the peeps. Henry's interludes with Nadja lack any of the mortifying ambiguity of his other interactions with people. He pays her. She gives him what he needs. In the months leading up to the benefit I was scheduled to read at back in San Francisco, I had been frequenting that city's legendary, now-defunct, work-around, porn-and-peeps club, The Lusty Lady, several times a week. This was a decade after New York, my second peep show life, in my 30s. Like Henry, I had my own Nadja. She was small, with auburn shoulder-length hair, full breasts, cat-like face, with eyes somehow simultaneously sultry and kind, and most important, eyes that looked back at me. Her stage name was Sassafras. I learned her schedule and planned my visits accordingly. Once I'd become her regular, as soon as I slipped my first token into the slot and the window cranked open, she'd come right over and dance for me. Eventually she would kneel down to be at eye level, hold her breasts in her hands and faintly hum. Through the plexiglass, I could never make out what she was humming just that it wasn't the Jane's Addiction or Prince song playing on the sound system. I never knew if she knew I could hear her, but I did. 
and I saw her, and she saw me. I had found my ideal confessor. The night of the reading, I put on a pair of old cords and my favorite vintage rayon shirt and headed over to the theater with both close and the nice poems under my arm, just in case I chickened out. When I arrive, the house is already at standing room. The audience is maybe three-quarters radical queer women. I check in with G, who tells me I'm scheduled to close out the first half of the show. You'll be great, she says, and gives me a big hug. Fuck. The readers who go on before me include a young, beautiful gay Asian man and a lesbian poet who is not only leather-clad and very angry, but also confined to a wheelchair. They do great, and the crowd loves them. And then G introduces me. I step on stage. The blood begins its rush to my face and ears. I arrange my papers, look around the room, offer a spastic hello, and take a deep breath. This is a short story called Close, I say, my voice booming through the PA. It's... I stifle the urge to explain or apologize. It's written in the form of a journal of a museum guard named Henry. I look up, scan the room for friends, and that's when I see her. In the back left corner, leaning against the wall, is Sassafras. I look down, blink twice, and think, hey, how about that? I just imagined I saw Sassafras in the audience. I look up again. There she is, fully dressed, looking right up at me, naked, on stage. To run into a dancer in my life outside the lusty lady wasn't as unlikely as it might seem. San Francisco can be a surprisingly small town, and the club employed an odd mix of industry pros, artists, writers, academics. But to see Sass in the audience when I'm about to read close in public, to come out as a perv and a pig to an audience of live, clothed women, not to mention my friends and family who were there, it was overwhelming. I take one more deep breath and begin to read. A page or so in, I pause, slip out of Henry's twitchy, cold persona, look up and smile as if to say, Hi, everybody, don't forget, that's Henry, I'm Jamie. And then I get to the tough stuff, as Henry. After work, I stop at Babeland. Today, Nadja is there. I feed the machine an extra bill and give her five bucks through the window, even though it only costs three to touch. I tell her hi, and she kneels down. I hold one breast gently with my left hand and jerk off with my right. I like how heavy and warm it is. The breast. Sometimes she holds my face in her hands and calls me baby, or bibby. I know it's an act, but it still feels good. I always forget to bring tissues. The audience laughs at the tissues line, and I'm starting to settle into being Henry. Soon I'm at page 10 and reading, Thank you, the last two words of the story. There's a pause, and then the crowd begins to whoop and whistle and clap. I'm sure no longer or louder than for any other reader, but to me it feels like absolute thunder. I step off stage, and G announces the intermission. A tough and talented writer I recognize tells me she's heard a lot of crap on that subject, but that my piece was really pretty okay. 
High praise from her, I'm later told. G gives me another big hug and with a proud grin tells me I did a great job. Suddenly, I remember that back left corner. I wheel around, but don't see her anywhere. Then, over by the door, I spot a familiar face. And the woman I know only as Sassafras gives me that sweet, sly smile I adore, turns, and is gone. Okay, here's part two of my conversation with Beth Lissick. Among the things we talked about are moving to New York in one's 40s, writing and having a writing career and what success in that means, punk rock damage, a term that I first heard from Beth. I didn't ask her whether it's her own term, but you'll see what it means, and I'm sure some of you have it, and it holds some of us back from succeeding. Punk rock damage. Uh, We talk about porch light. We talk about asserting your own success and making sure you read your own audiobook <laughs> when your book comes out. Uh, we talk about working with a writing partner, avoiding becoming a brand, for better or for worse, making art in this past year of fucking Trump, uh, connecting with strangers in this past year, a little bit of Me Too and Louie and Harvey and, of course, some fame as it relates to those things and sex and power and whether it's time for redemption for men or not. We talk about the misuse of the word pervert as the equivalent of predator. And we talk a little bit about some writers we know, like Stephen Elliott. Hope you enjoy it. Episode 54, Beth Lissick. We spoke in December. It's funny, in the past week, I wanted to catch up by listening to Yokohama Three-Way, but instead what I did was go back to experiencing our life 20 years ago in the mission. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, my God. I'm writing about that right now in this book that I'm writing. I'm writing a lot about the 80s and 90s San Francisco. Yeah. So, novel. First novel. Yeah, first novel. And you were saying it does it does harken back to those years and, and that place? Yeah, I have part of it takes place um more two thousand twelve ish, but but a lot of it is um the first part of it is late takes place in late eighties, uh early nineties, San Francisco. Just weirdo art scene. Exactly. <laughs> that basically between the, you know, fifteenth and 24th Street and uh, Valencia and South NS, you know, <laughs> just a just a long rectangle of weirdos. I'm going to love that. And is it a, how much would you say it's based on actual experiences and how much is it purely fictional? I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a novel with a fictional character um, protagonist and um, who is a bartender. Um, and, um, it has, she's from San Jose, which is where I'm from. So it has that kind of an, um, Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley thing, um, which is a lot of what I'm experiencing now is being so disconnected from the thing that my 
home is about. You know, what everybody in the world thinks of when they think of that area is not what I think of at all. You mean the, because of tech? Yeah, because of the tech world. And I think also because of my age and who my friends are, that that's just not my world. Like, I know nothing about it. I don't know anything about Twitter and Facebook and, and you know, people who work there. Like, you know, it's... it's how, about, how about Friendster? <laughs> <laughs> I was never... Were you ever on Friendster? I wasn't on Friendster. I was. Um, but I... So... Yeah, I didn't know anybody who worked for those companies. And, and, you know, I have a friend right now who, like, two days a week does uh, copy editing at Apple. But besides that, like, I honestly don't know any of these tech people that we're always reading about and that are always walking around everywhere when you go to, you know, our old neighborhood now. Um, So, yeah, so it's about that. So it's about the time before? It's it's about feeling alienated from what it is now. So a person uh, from who, what is growing, yeah, yeah. So what it's turned into, and not just San Francisco, but being a person from Santa Clara Valley, being a person from from that area, and um, how it you know went from like when I was growing up, it was a bunch of you know everybody's dad worked at Xerox or Hewlett Packard, or my dad worked at Lockheed Missiles in Space. And then some of the moms worked, some of them didn't. My mom was a, a tutor for kids with learning disabilities. And um, uh, like my friend's mom was a nurse and my other friend's mom was a receptionist in her, her husband's dentist office. You know, so it was like the mostly it was this middle, very middle class dad worked and it was technology. I mean, really like, you know, Xerox and, and um, Hewlett Packard and that stuff. But I mean, a very kind of, you know, they, they, the infancy of all of that and going to like a parade and and seeing this like group of like 12 people wearing little t-shirts with an apple on it, little rainbow apple and being like, what's that? You know, Oh my God, they're going to put computers in people's homes, you know? And, and it was just like such a, such a different time. Um, So it's, it's kind of about like my protagonist is a person who is just feels super alienated from what that, what the, Bay Area has has become, and she's trying to kind of get her get her mojo back because she's sort of super um, jaded and cranky about it all. When's it When's it coming up? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just I'm just finishing some edits. That yeah, I'm just finishing some edits on it. I haven't sold it yet. Um, I even though I have other books that are out, it's my first novel, so I have to like finish the whole thing and actually make sure that it's good before anybody will put it out. So I'm working with my agent on is a full draft with your agent now. Or are you? Yeah, it, it was. And then I, I got it back with notes. And so now I'm finishing that part and then going to send it back after I finish with that, which should be soon. I hope. Is there a working title? Yeah, but I don't want to say it. I'm, yeah. Okay. No, no, that's fair. You don't want to jinx it. Yeah. And and you you also mentioned that you're in a, a short film that's yeah we shot um oh yeah you don't know John Hershend he's great so so this guy John Hershend from San Francisco um, had a art publication a, a, it was called the Thing Quarterly and the idea was that four times a year they would get an artist to make an object and you would subscribe to it and you would get that object in the mail. So they would have like Miranda July or Dave Eggers or would make something and then they would mass produce it, however many, you know, subscribers they had, not a ton. 
and then, um, but it was, and they did events and it was really cool. And, and, um, so he just emailed me out of the blue and had seen a couple short films that I'd acted in and asked if I wanted to write a script and, and act in a film with him. And it's been super fun. We shot, um, the first part of it in Austin, Texas, uh, about a month ago. And then I'm going out to San Francisco, um, next weekend to finish it. And, um, yeah, it's been really fun. I love collaborating with, uh, with people. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's just been, it's been a total blast. That's probably, probably what I miss most about cities. I mean, I've taken a weird detour in, in creative life in in that, in the past, for the past 10 years, uh, being the co-owner of a bar and restaurant has been my creative outlet. Well, and I think that can be creative. And it's like, I think that being, I don't know, being, and you're doing this. I mean. Well, yeah. And I'm doing this and I'm kind of phasing back into being more actively making things and less that. And it's hard. And it's also hard because the people who I would collaborate most with are still people back there. Or that's, in New York. that's well for me, it's, it's, it's that there are people that um, are either in San Francisco or Los Angeles and, you know, moving here, it was a weird time to move here. I mean, I moved here when I was in my mid forties, you know, after having my set up my whole life, I mean, my whole life, I lived in the Bay area. I went to school at UC Santa Cruz. I lived in San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, my entire life. So it was, to come out here was super weird. And, um, and I still don't, I mean, I still don't have any like really good friends who live here. My brother lives here. My brother and sister-in-law live here, but all my good friends are, you know, in Los Angeles or San Francisco. And, um, how many years? Now? I've been here for five years. Yeah. I think it's harder once we're older and more you're, you're married, you have a child. It is because because when you're younger, that's when you're like going out and you get drunk and you go, ah, remember that crazy night we had or people <laughs> have roommates or, you know, it's all. And then once you get, I mean, I've had, I've thought about Don't writing know what about, you're talking about. <laughs> I've thought about writing about some of the um, hilarious like friend dates that I've had in New York because it's just like me sitting across the table from some like mom on my son's, you know, baseball team being all, oh, so what school did your son go to element? What subways? Like, you know, it's like the, the, it's like, it's really hard to, to just kind of connect with people and start at, you know, you have to get to know people. And I've, I've met a couple people that I really like, but they're, you know, they live there forever and they have their friends and their lives. And I, I remember when I lived in San Francisco, um, people would try to go out with me to, you know, go out for drinks or, and I was just like, God, I don't even get to see my good friends as much as I want to. Like, I don't really, I didn't really have room for new friends, you know, and I know what that feels like. So I feel self-conscious about being that person in other people's lives here. You know, it's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I understand like people have their shit going on and they don't, it's like, you don't really. So yeah, it's, it's been a weird, it's been a, I mean, it's been great. I wouldn't change it for anything. I'm so glad that I live here. But, um, but, but as far as like having good friendships, um, there, you know, there's all, everybody lives somewhere else. It, it's really bizarre and exciting lately that people from the Bay Area are moving to this very little area of ours in Western Mass. Um, do you know, uh, Sarah Fran was, yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. I got to come visit. I know. Sarah Fran lives there and Sarah Seinberg. Sarah Fran just there. moved in. I know. 
Oh. Right. And Ginger, I saw them last night and they said to say hello. Oh, good. And, you know, I hope, you know, uh, Sarah and I kind of, uh, we, we've been, you know, she's only been, how long has it been? Six months or so. Yeah. But, there's an idea of some kind of collaboration that I'd really love to do, uh, some kind of a performance, or you know, can we can we uh, get a, a Porchlight franchise? <laughs> yeah, start up. <laughs> Is Porchlight still going on? Yeah, we do it um, less often now. When I first moved, they were they were we were still doing monthly shows, and I would go out every other month or every third month. But, Let me huh? s- sneak in and say Porchlight is a storytelling series. That you and Arlene Klatt, Arlene Klatt started in 2002. So it's been going on for a very long time. Um, and now we do, we always do a show with uh, Lit Quakes, a literary festival, and we always do a show with the Sketch Fest. So that'll be our next one in January. And then we usually, we do something with the film festival or the Jewish museum. Like those, those shows are easier to put together um, because the, I think when we were doing monthly shows, you know, we would find people, you told a story at Portland, we would get people, you know, and get a theme and do it like, you know, a regular, now they're storytelling series everywhere. But at the time when we started it, it was kind of like we had to keep explaining to people what it was like, okay, you can't do a monologue, you can't read from a piece of paper, you have to, you know, and, and that was super fun. And then what happened, I think is now that there's more storytelling series, it's kind of like the fun of it is a little bit been a little bit sucked out because people have their like signature stories that they, or they've listened to the moth and they know what it's supposed to sound like. And so it's not as wild as it used to feel like, you know, like, Oh my God, this, what is this person going to say? Like, what is happening? Like the format felt new back then. And, and um, the shows are still really fun, but I, we're trying to figure out an approach now to, uh, get people who don't normally tell stories on stage, which was always one of our things that we, our goals when we started out was like, let's, let's dig and find people who, you know, are not people who talk into a microphone on the stage regularly. And so um, we're, yeah. So I think that for next year, we've got a little plan in place that we're going to do four shows that are sort of neighborhood oriented in San Francisco um, and finding, you know, stories from those neighborhoods and then, working with people and doing shows uh, that take place in the neighborhood that we're doing the stories about. That That is kind of my, my, I hope to do a quarterly, I'll talk to you more about it uh, off the air, a quarterly event like that here. Um, somehow revolving around some aspect of fame. So I wanted to make it 15 minutes related um, and find, and maybe coach four people each doing 15 minute stories with a house band and maybe, and maybe a little uh, chat a little panel amongst the group at some point. And I also thought of dialing into one, one person to tell a story. So the idea of, you know, the, the, the bigger world and, you know, some, I put you up on a screen behind us sometime, Beth. And have you, you, you maybe at the first one talk about porch light. Cause it's a big inspiration for me. And it was a really, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of performing, but that, that one night was really important to me. Yeah. Porch light was great. You were at the cafe du Nord, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yep. It's, um, I think it's great because it really does get people. I didn't mean to like bad mouth how, you know, like, but I, but I think that it's great because it really does get people thinking about their stories and it gets people talking at the, you know, always at the intermission and, and it's, I mean, it's a great community thing to do. My mother-in-law started one in Tucson 
that's been going for like 12 years now. <laughs> like she, she started her own and, and my friend in Portland started her own after coming to Porchlight. And, and I think it's just, I mean, it's a, I think you should do it. It's such a, it's, it's a cool. really cool thing. And it's a great way to meet other do, people and get people on stage who, who, you know, have great stories, but aren't necessarily people who seek out the spotlight. That's great. Are those other ones called Porchlight? No. Or are they just um, their own no, little my series? My mother-in-law's okay. is called The Odyssey. Um, and then my friend, oh, um, yeah, my friend, friend in, in Portland, hers is called Backfen. Well, I'm, I'm really glad it's still going on. It's a great thing. And, I think also the since the moth and people come with their stories that they're ready to do, there's also, you know, it, it kind of ties into what I'm doing here is that people start to see it instead of this place where I can release this thing I've been wanting to tell tell someone that it becomes, I could become a storyteller. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had people in their bios, you know, send me their bios for the website and it's like, so-and-so is a professional storyteller. And I'm like, who is a professional storyteller? Like, I don't, I mean, I guess, but it just, I just kind of feel like, oh, it, I mean, even remember, we even had this thing because I had put on the website that you were a bartender and you're like, I'm a writer and performer. And I was like, okay, but <laughs> you're also a bartender. And like, that's fun to have, like, have stories about that. And like, I wanted, I don't know, to make sure that it's like, that it wasn't a series just for writers and performers, you know, like getting a, the yeah. point across that it's like, oh, I want to know what, I love knowing what people do to make money and, and, you know, and you can do that stuff too. It's like, you can be a storyteller or a comedian or whatever, but it's like, we all have our things where we earn our money and, and that's, you know, I'm always interested in those. Your memory is all too good, my friend. Because one of the reasons I, you know, I started making this is, is that I've had chips like that on my shoulder. I think I probably said that to you because there were more people <clears throat> who were my friends in San Francisco at that point only knew me as a bartender. Right, right. So I wanted them to see me as a, as a legitimate writer-performer. Yeah, no, I get it. It's very... But now I'd be thrilled to have bartender <laughs> on a bio. Right? Because it's like, that's where the stories are, you know? It's like, yeah, you can be a writer and performer, but it's like, what's your what's your life story and where your where do your stories come from? You uh, didn't mention it in the email, but I, I, at least then you were working with your longtime best pal and writing buddy, Tara Jepsen. Yay, Tara Jepsen. She's coming to New York today. Ah, uh, is she going to? <laughs> I do believe the last time one of you flew on an airplane, there was a little Twitter exchange afterwards. <laughs> About pooping. Oh, I can't remember. There were, yeah, there was something. I can't remember what it was, but she, yeah, she, she is a lot more of a social media person than I am. So she'll just like, we'll have a conversation that we'll be texting privately, and then she'll just like put it on Twitter and tag me that I just said something, and I'm just like, and I, I mean, I find it very endearing because it's just so. Live tweet your poop story. Well, I remember your back and forth was really hilarious. You know, like true friendship is not minding that your friend just tweeted about you pooping or something. Um, but so are you two working on something? Yeah, we are. We have a show. Well, it started out as a screenplay. And then it after getting some feedback from it, we turned it into a series pitch. Um, so she lives in Los Angeles. When I moved here, she moved to L.A. This is my friend Tara Jepson, who is the most hilarious person I know. And she... Um, 
uh, we've been we did all sorts of weird performance art and writing and films and stuff together. Uh, we've been working together for 20 years, which is insane. I love it. And she's um, so she's coming to New York today. We're working on a new script, but she's in L.A. and can totally do the thing where she like takes the meetings with the people where I really don't like doing that. And so it's kind of perfect. So we write together. And that's it's so great because it's how our friendship came about was um, this group called Sister Spit in San Francisco, started by Michelle T. Mm-hmm. and Sydney Anderson. And it was a, you know, feminist performance, spoken word uh, series that happened. Then we went on a bunch of tours. And, and so that's how I met Tara. And from the very beginning, we just started writing together. And so we don't like we've never been friends where it's like, do we I mean, we will go out to dinner or go to a movie, but we don't like what we do is sit together and write stuff and just laugh our asses off. So, um, uh, yeah, so she's coming and we're going to work on a new thing. We have one series pitch that's out there right now. That's great. Uh, That is a lifelong uh, fantasy of mine to have a partner like that. And I still hope I'll find him or her. Feels so great. Yeah, you, yeah. You know what? I think that you will. Because if you are, if you're putting that energy out there looking for it, like I've had people that I've collaborated with on one thing and it went fine and it, you know, it was just for that thing and it was great. I don't have any like disaster stories. You know, it's like maybe you just do one thing with somebody or maybe you find uh, a person, you know, like Tara and I founded each other where it's like, wow, we can like we have that thing where if we write something, we look back on it and we can't remember who wrote what. And, and that feels amazing, you know, to, to just be like, wow, we're just like, yeah, it feels very um, like, I don't know. feel, I feel really, really lucky to have found that. I'm living in in a world kind of separated from the feelings of, of worrying about the proprietary nature of work, but is there anything that you guys are particularly working on that you can, Tell me anything that what you wanted to, what you want to pitch or in a, you know a general theme idea of it. Well, I mean, most of our stuff involves women. We like to write about women. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, um, yeah, I mean, you know, strong female protagonists, and you know, we're we both are pretty can be pretty gross. Um, and you know, I, I mean, we both love talking about uncomfortable things or things that people don't talk about that much. Um, and um, we, uh, and then this new thing that we're working on came out of a independent film that we were working on together that was so bananas and so so ridiculous that we're kind of fictionalizing some of that and writing about sort of a meta a meta story about uh, two friends working on a film. Not we're not writing it for ourselves to act in, but but just as a as a script to sell. When talking about yourself and writing when you were making uh, or publicizing Yokohama, Yokohama Three-Way, I always want to say freeway <laughs> because Yokohama makes I car parts or something. I told my mom that's what it was called, Yokohama Freeway. I was just, and I, there was a lot of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In and out. <laughs> um, uh, but you talked a lot about <clears throat> some ideas of success. Uh, and about those humiliating, shameful, embarrassing moments as being a big part of life or or of success and failure. And you, you talk about being, you wrote here, I'm going to quote you. I was homecoming princess. I was on the school newspaper. I was the class vice president. I had all the markers 
to just be like a regular successful person in some other realm. And then you wrote, you said, the only way I see myself as a successful writer is that I'm still writing. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I do, I do think sometimes I, it's weird because there's, there are all these ideas, right. That if you're, you know, an artist or writer, or there's some kind of inner, you know, turmoil or something that's keeping you doing this thing where you're trying to get at something, you're trying to figure something out or you're trying to show something or, or tell something that you haven't seen before. And, and, you know, that that there's obviously, you know, something under my skin that I'm like, keep doing these things. But so I do think about when, as a, as a teenager and as a kid, like I said, like when you followed me around that day, like it wasn't that weird to me because I hadn't had an experience in my life where I had been traumatized in that way. And, and, and I think about, um, my, I had a really great family and childhood and, and, um, and I was like a really kind of, you know, kid that was, I mean, I was always, I, I think in high school, I definitely, I, you know, shaved my hair off and I wore thrift store clothes and, but I was still the, you know, the homecoming queen and the track star and like all this stuff that, that it just, it's sort of a, I guess I, I always think of kind of a, it's a strange thing that then I grew up to be somebody who like lived in shitty warehouses and was more into like a just kind of a DIY punk aesthetic than I just went to my 30th high school reunion and there's a lot of really you know successful people who have a lot of money um living in the same area and you know driving nice cars and like this whole thing that just wasn't it never felt right to me but I don't I don't I don't see myself as a failure you know it's just I I I think that is true it's like I see myself as a successful writer because I'm still writing and that's I think it's it's, you know, that's a hard thing to keep doing sometimes. Um, I think especially for me, like with the internet, with the, the internet, uh, the invention of the internet, um, I started writing in the very, big, you know, first days of the SF Gate, the Chronicles website, where we were paid well. And I was, you know, writing about the art scene in San Francisco. And, and it felt like, you know, it was like San Francisco's first nightlife blog basically is what I wrote for eight years. Um, and as soon as it kind of changed and people started, everybody was writing blogs and there was what up friends are in my, my space and all this stuff. It just seemed less interesting to me to, to be doing it. Like I felt like, Oh, I don't need to be doing this because everybody's talking about what band they went to go see the other night or what, you know, and, and it just, I, I, so I feel like in a way, um, that kind of, I still have, I still don't really write for the internet. I just don't, you know, it's like, I, I like working on longer book projects, but the immediate thing of, I don't know, writing, uh, I don't know what it is, but I definitely have like, uh, that's, it's, I guess I'm thinking of one way that I don't feel successful is that I don't, um, you know, I don't really have my brand out there, Jamie, trying to like be a thing. Cause it's not, it's not what I want to do, you know, it's like, so, you know, so I think of it sometimes as like, oh, that's probably bad that I don't do that. So, well, before, before I, I want to respond directly to that, but I just also want to give, you know, 
13 years late, props. Beth was one of the only people who wrote about one of what I think of my great successes, an art show about my dog. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you're in SF Gate. And, and it's funny how yeah, people aren't not only aren't getting paid, but everybody got fired from L.A. Weekly yesterday. I know. I saw that. I mean, it's, yeah. So at the time, like, yeah, writing about your art show at Adobe or writing about, you know, bands that were playing at the makeout room, like that was so fun to me because it was like up till then everything was in the newspaper and that, that stuff wasn't in the newspaper, you know? And so, um, so that, I mean, it was really fun. And in those, I don't know, in the early days of it, it did feel kind of like wild west and like, Oh my God, like, I guess you can just write about anything on it. You know, it kind of seemed like with the, uh, the self-help, uh, the, the book, what was it called? Helping me help myself. Yeah. That there was, there was a, a kind of a brand in development there. Um, but it, it, it doesn't feel exactly inherently you to me. I mean, yeah, like that book was definitely like, it was a different, I had pitched a different idea and that idea got pitched back to me and I was like, Oh, I'll try that, you know? And, um, and I felt like, I think after everybody into the pool, the, the editors and agents wanted me to, you know, keep doing that same thing and have, you know, like funny essays about my life. And I, and I just, I didn't, I didn't really want to. And after I did helping me help myself, I just felt like, Oh, I didn't actually like exposing myself that much. You know, like I, I was, I struggled with that book a lot because I just felt like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to write about my kid. That was a big thing too, about having a kid is I was just like, I don't want to write about my kid. Like that's his life. Like, I don't, I'm not gonna, you know, write a blog. I don't even, I don't post photos of him. Like, you know, every once in a while now that he's, he's old enough to tell me that it's okay, but there's no baby pictures of my kid on the internet, you know? Cause I was just like, that's not, I don't know. It just didn't feel right to me. And so that's something that I've kind of felt like I had to just, well, trust it and be like, that's, you know, I, I, I'm just gonna not do that, even though I could probably, you know, make a couple hundred dollars with a mommy blog post or whatever. In terms of let's, I'm going to put, put it as a, when, when, the novel is finished and you have a publisher mm-hmm. and a pub date and it gets published. Oh, I like that. That's the way the positive thinking thing, when it's done, when it gets published. It's what I learned from you native Northern Californians. When yeah, man. Um, Get into it. Yeah. I think you were saying earlier, put the energy out there. Yeah. Um, what, it seems to me when you, you describe yourself as not feeling like a failure, but I also feel like you seem very, pretty comfortable that you, you do your work, you, you have your life, you're not, you don't, you know, is, would success be measured more by, what would success of a novel be measured by for you? Oh. You know, uh, making more of a living, getting uh, a claim from certain places or people. Right. I think- uh, having a certain number of readers, copies sold, what, what, what in terms yeah. of, you know. That's a good question. That's a really good question because- I think that I definitely have worked harder on this book than I've worked on anything ever in my life. And, and I do feel like, um, in the beginning days of doing things, I just would do something, you know, make it as good as I could put it out there and move on, which I think is a really good way to do stuff because it's like, then you never, you know, if you can cripple yourself by, you know, paralyze yourself by, by trying to make everything exactly perfect. And 
So I, I think that when I was starting out and writing things, I would, or performing things, I would just, I would write them and make them as best as I could and then put them out there and move on. And, um, and I didn't take so much care to like make sure that I was, um, uh, thinking about like my career or what, you know, I know people who are successful who are very career oriented and they think about what steps they need to take, like where they should get published or who they should meet and, and, and not in a bad way at all. in like a really good strategic way, like this will ensure or help me, um, continue my career, uh, it, it, doing what I want to keep doing, you know, if I, if I do these steps. And I think that I never really did that. And I always felt a little bit embarrassed um, uh, by, by doing those things, like by, um, you know, like, like I have a little bit of punk rock damage, I think is what I, I've been calling it is like, yeah, me too. So much, you know, like I have this punk rock damage where I'm like, I don't, it's not that it's not cool to try because of course I try with all my stuff. I try to make it the best I can. I want to be doing the work, but, but I don't want to be doing the parts that don't feel comfortable to me. And, and a lot of that is like, you know, Oh, meeting somebody and then following up with them and seeing, you know, how I could possibly get my thing into, because I think ultimately I just, I, I don't have that desire to, make sure a lot of people hear what I have to say or read my work. You know, I don't really, I don't really think it's that important. It's important to me. And I think there's a yeah, certain audience it. out. Yeah. It's important to me to make it. And I think that there's certain out people out there who will enjoy it, but I don't have that desire. Like, Hey guys, this is really important that my voice needs to be heard. And, and I think that other people do have that, you know, it's like, I know people who have that, whose stories really need to be told and they haven't been stories we've been hearing. And, and, and I get that, but for me, I'm like, Oh, here's a funny story about the time the, you know, the, the, the pipes blew in the warehouse and we, there was a shit storm and we all had pieces of toilet paper falling on us. Like, you know, I'm just like, well, that's disgusting and hilarious, but like, I'm not really like, Hey everybody, you've got to, you've got to, you know, hear my voice. Um, so yeah. So, so that's, so, so, but, but I think with this novel, I really am thinking of it. It's like, I'm working really fucking hard on it. And I really, I think, I don't know, maybe success is that, is that I I don't know. I get to, I get to write another one and, and get some money for it. But, but I don't, I don't know. I know that there's not a lot of money in, in, in publishing books. I mean, I know that already. So I think that is just that I'll write it and that it will be good and I'll feel proud of it. Um, And people will want to read it. You know, there'll be people out there that want to read it. I think that's it. I mean, I have a very modest. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that, and that, yeah, that punk rock, damn it, that, is a, that term is just so perfect for so much I've thought about in the past year and a half making this, because I have so much of that. It's, it's nothing wrong with trying and working hard and even making something great. It's succeeding that's, the, that, 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 that's disgusting. Yeah, like it feels... To, to, to yeah. my youth. Yeah, I feel there was one time when Everybody Into the Pool came out and I had to supply People magazine with a photo of myself. And... And it couldn't be my press photo from the um, book jacket. So it had to be a new photo that I had to take at like the last minute to send to them. And this was 2005 or something. So it had to be in a 
um, be taken with like a professional camera, you know, so I had to call my, and I was in tears by the time it was over because I felt so uncomfortable posing for a photograph, you know, and it's like, you know, I mean, I could do that now. I could do it for sure right now and it'd be fine. But I remember at that time, it just felt so antithetical to who I was to be like, trying to look good for people magazine like it just felt like wrong you know and and I think that that's I mean I don't know I think that that I've obviously come a long way that if I feel like I could do it now and it wouldn't be traumatizing but um but that it's real you know I think it's like the our age group and when we grew up and the whole Reagan years and AIDS years and like all that stuff I feel it really deeply I feel that kind of DIY, fuck you, you're, you know, and I just, I can't help it, you know, and, and I have to fight against it a lot um, because I think that it holds me back. Yeah. And I think part of that ethos involves us looking down on people who, not down on, but it's only now that I'm coming to appreciate that, oh, because we all feel this way, that's why people have other jobs as publicists you know and you know if if a young punk if if fiona apple made a great first record and some fancy people you let the fancy people make you a star and then you get to keep making the stuff for the rest of your life uh, is a is a is a thing that i oh that's not how it works now though you know now it's like you have to you have to do it yourself i mean you're, nobody's going to come along and just be like, here, you know, it's like nobody's going to do that work for you anymore. And I think that you, and, and I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that in, in rare cases, people, you know, used to, but, but, but I don't, it, yeah, it's, as long as I've been publishing books, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, and nobody's paying you to go on tour anymore and things like that. But I, I just mean, mm, I don't know, even on a personal level, my wife is a brilliant photographer. And she's as repulsed by self-promotion as anybody, but I'm much more comfortable promoting her and she's more comfortable promoting me. You know, so even on a, on a, on a you know, on a, on a good level, but I do feel like those people still do help you though. Yeah, no, they help you because they, yeah. they help you even <clears throat> if they're just telling you, you know, what you need to do or saying like, okay, get yeah. me this stuff and I'll send this stuff. I mean, you know, it is like having yeah. a partner who's, who's helping you get through something that doesn't, uh, isn't, it doesn't do something that is not attractive yeah. to you. You know, that that's for sure. Um, yeah. and yeah, I definitely wrestle with it because I do feel like sometimes like, Oh, like you were saying, you listen to the audio book of the Oklahoma three way. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it. I don't know who the fuck is doing the voice, but it makes me crazy because probably all I would have had to do was say, I want to do the audiobook. I mean, I'm a voice, like I make money doing voiceover and, and like, and I love to read from my work. That's why I started re writing, you know, was to be able to read at open mics and stuff like that. But my ego got in the way because I didn't just say, Oh, I want to do this. I just assumed they'd ask me. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, nobody ever asked me. I didn't say anything and nobody ever asked me. And now somebody else has done my audiobook. This is such a great lesson because all week long I've been wrestling with how can I talk to her about this? 
how could she not have read this? I know. It's- if someone doesn't know you, don't. if you haven't listened to it, don't. She does a fine job. But there's none of your charm or likableness. It comes off very... Oh, I don't want it's again, I enjoy listening to it, but I also was like, it's cold. There's a lot of humor in that book, even though that book is about super yes. cringy stuff. There's a lot of humor in that book, and I'm sure that it doesn't come through as much. But, but, but that's my fault. And the warmth. But it's, yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, that's to, and it's totally Ugh. my fault because okay, I. Okay, so with the novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with the novel, is it first person? Yes, it's in first person. If you're not reading that, I'm going to come. I know. And just... No, no, no. I will. I will. I and actually, I talked to somebody recently who was like, "You can redo. You can have your audiobook redone," um, because it just like, oh, when you said you listened to it in the beginning part of our conversation, I was like, oh god, oh god, yeah. Because I've never, I've oh, never listened Beth, to it, and I never will. I think if you could even just break even or even spend a little to re-record it yourself, I think you'd be so proud and happy. Well, that, oh, I would. I mean, you know, Eli's a recording engineer and I live above a recording studio. So I could do it now. Yeah, I could do it in like a half hour. But I, but I, you need to like get the rights back from the, um, it's a little bit of a contract thing. But I'm sure they would just be like, who cares what, you know, if you'll do the, if, if I paid for it myself, they'd probably be fine with it. And it's also a kind of thing where if the novel were even mildly successful would be a good way to bring it back. Yeah, as an audiobook, to bring the the because I think you'd be wonderful doing it, and I'm so glad you brought it up. Another story, almost exactly like that. Uh, my friend Mira Bartok, who has a strange she she writes for adults, she writes for teens, but she she wrote a memoir that was very well uh, received a few a few years ago. Oh yeah, I listened to her your interview with her. It was great. And and now. You know, you say these magic things don't happen, but she's having a Cinderella story. Oh no, I don't think that magical things don't happen. I I, I do think that magical things happen, but I think that a lot of times you, nobody's gonna, really going to discover you, and you have to do the work. I think for the most part, but her story really is incredible. Yeah, and in terms of not even just not asking for things or being, you know, it sounds like maybe you were a little. Were, did you have a little a, a, a chip on your shoulder that you weren't asked to write it? I mean, to, to, to talk, to no, I, I signed the I signed the contract with Audible and then just figured the next step would be recording it. Oh, and then I God. just never heard anything. And then when I and then I actually got an email from the woman who was reading everybody into the pool. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm reading your book right now, you know, recording it. It's so great. And I was like, what? Whoa. And that's when I was just like, oh my God, nobody even asked me. Like it just, yeah. So then I got a chip on my shoulder. And I don't, I think they generally don't, or they, if they don't know that you're a person who's, because I suppose in terms of efficiency, yeah, people who just read books for a living just bust it out. Yeah, they just go down. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends who read their own books and I know that I should have read my own book for sure. Yeah. But in terms of when success comes to you, like accepting it and, and, you know, Mira talked about like not knowing how to accept perks or not realizing that like when the opportunity, when, when somebody said, Oh, we could get Kate Winslet to read your book. Just say immediately like, yes, let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) And her reader is terrific of the new novel, but 
Kate Winslet <laughs> uh, would have been interesting too. Right. I mean, yeah, but being able, right, being able to when those things happen, just on the on the topic of punk rock damage, like when those things happen, to be able to say like, wow, that's because that is who she wanted, you know. I mean, it's not like they were, you know. Uh, putting up this person that she didn't, I mean, that's who she wanted. And, and then she heard that name and she just thought that couldn't possibly be true. But, but I think that, um, yeah, a lot of it is like, actually there is something to understanding and knowing what you, what you want the success to be. Like you said, like, what would that mean to you? And I think that those, those things are really important to think about. And I think that I've spent my whole life not really thinking about them because I'm a pretty content person i mean now the world feels absolutely insane <laughs> on an emotional roller coaster daily like most of us but but um you know like it's just i've been more depressed in the past year than i've ever been in my entire life including my teenage years or my 20s or any of it you know postpartum any of it i'm just like what the yeah it, it's horrible and are you doing any performing since then uh a little bit yeah I'm doing, I'm trying to think what I, yeah, I'm doing readings and I do storytelling things sometimes. Yeah. I just wonder what that's like. Yeah. Right. Uh, Cause you, you have know, to, to, I mean, to how do you not talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, so many, I guess I'm thinking more about, I don't know if you, uh, if you were on social media, uh, yeah, right around the election, uh, Anya, my wife did, did a photo project this grab him by the ballot. Oh, right, right. And it, 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 you know, it was this thing and it went viral and it blew up and then we lost. Yeah. <laughs> and this beautiful project, it's like, what do you do with the art you've made or make anything new Ugh. right in this last year? We'll all bounce back. Fuck them. Yeah. You know, and people are making great things, but it's been a, Oh my yeah. God. You know, I, I, I do. Yeah. I, I talk, you know, I talk about it too much, but, Fame is what a huge part of what brought that guy there. It's like the only thing that he absolutely had succeeded at is getting famous. And so it's a powerful, gross thing. There's reason to be punk rock. <laughs> I, I was thinking about it today when, when, you know, like right after he was elected and people were saying like, oh, well, at least some good art is going to come out of this or something like that or good comedy. Oh, and it's just fuck. Like, oh. Fuck that. But the one thing that the, my experience that I had today, one of the reasons I was in such a great mood is I went out of my house and my laundromat on my block has been um, closed because they're getting a new boiler and they can't get the city to like come in and give them the permit. And it's like this family who's lost their livelihood, right? Is this laundromat where I do my laundry. And um, so I was talking to them and the mom, the mom doesn't speak that great of English and um, the son and uh his wife do and so i was talking to them and and the mom was talking to me and and we and i was trying to understand her and 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 she really wanted to talk to me about where i was doing my laundry now and how dryers were and if how much it cost and all stuff and um and so i had this just really great exchange with just this family who lives down my block that i see when i do my laundry you know and but i felt like that moment of us trying to like we were really like talking in a way and then I had this happen uh, right afterwards when I went to go get my oil changed on my car and met this um, couple from Yemen. And then so, they invited me over for dinner. 
And, and I felt like, okay, you know what? I don't think this would be happening right now. Like uh, both of all our desire to communicate so much with people that we don't know that well, like I, I definitely feel like there has been uh, a more of that. I've made more of an effort to talk to people and be just kind and warm with people that I don't know um, since this has happened in the past year. And, you know, I hate to say there's any upshot at all because it's really dire right now. But, um, but one of the things about today was that I felt like, wow, I, I just had these really great exchanges and conversations with people that, that I normally don't talk to. And they were really wanting to, understand me and I was and the Yemen the Yemeni couple didn't speak that much English either and and I and I don't know like it just felt like something I was just like I'll take it like this you know it's it just like everything feels so upside down and and dire right now that's like these little things yeah I get weepy at the the the, the, the littlest good thing lately uh there was something just the other day but just little things like oh uh, like I said, I spend too much time on Twitter there, but there's a, a really good tweeter, and I don't name, I assume a good writer too, although I don't read her work that's longer than 240 <laughs> characters or whatever. Uh, Maura Quint. Okay, yeah. And she posted last night, she made a tweet like, and it was it was more about how for the men who feel like women are just full of rage and setting anybody up, Let's tell stories of men who didn't do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's just hundreds yeah. and hundreds of responses. Yeah. And of course, one douchebag saying, yeah, well, Louis didn't do anything different from that. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but the people who say good comedy is going to come out of it is a, is a place of such extreme privilege. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, little warm moments like uh, Anya's gone back to bartending because she quit a full-time job last year. Uh-huh. And a couple of days a week, she bartends and she freelances and she's getting a lot of photography work. But <clears throat> I swear to you, in the past month, I've seen certain men in their 50s into 60s, even 40s, who are, they're clearly trying to figure something out <laughs> in how they communicate. And they're not just like, oh, fuck, I don't want to fuck it up. They're They're like trying to... I don't know. They're trying to do something good and right. I do believe that. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, I read uh, something that Amber Tamblin wrote in the New York Times today that was sort of like, you know, we're not all these men want to go on and now start talking about redemption. And we're not ready for that yet. And I do believe there's something. I do believe there's something in that where it's like, okay, wait, 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 hold on. Just like, let this happen. Let this come out. Just step aside for a minute while we get all this. But but I don't think that that's just men. I just think that's in general, a lot of that is just like this, um, the way that the world is now. It's like, here's a problem. You got fired. Here's something that happened. Let's do this to you. Here's your punishment. This is, you know, and 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 that and that people are like, what's the reaction? What's the reaction? And and I, it is a time, I think, for people, yeah, to be trying to figure something out, to be like, to let there be, just let all these stories come out and let us sit with all this stuff and talk about all this stuff. And there doesn't, and they're not all the same, right? Everybody, you know, like 
you know, what happened between us and, and, you know, what Harvey Weinstein, like, it's not the same. And it's, and it's like, but, but thanks for putting them in the same. (laughs) You're both men, Jamie. Um, and, um, but I think that being able to, yeah, let there be a space for people to, to talk and to, to, to have this all come out is really, is really important. And yeah, and it is good to be reminded. Yeah. You know, like how, yeah, I feel, you know, lucky to know men who are not like that at all. And it, it, it should go on for a while. And what's interesting to me in, in, in terms of my little topic is it is mostly happening so far in the world of men who are publicly acclaimed. And, and, and there's a, a, a is there, a, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to parse it out in my brain, is there a sense of more entitlement than just being a billionaire if you're a billionaire who gets to make people stars like Harvey Weinstein or who is a star like Louis? Is there a sense of, of like, what else can I, can I get in the world? Right. Like there's so much, yeah, it's valued so much that it's, it's yeah, that I think that it does empower and it, it gives this, this certain sense of entitlement and power because it's people see it all around them as like, wow, this is a thing though. So I'm sure like the thing I always think about is like, Oh my God, who are the, hotel maids and the, you know, just like dealing with this shit constantly by, and I'm sure that, you know, Harvey Weinstein would have done that to a hotel maid as well, you know, but also just like some, you know, some random guy would also, you know, and, and it's just, it's a lot of it is, yeah, about, about power. But, but, but I think that what you're saying too, is that with this idea of fame and stardom and, it's like, holy shit, I can have everything. I can have every single thing that I want to do, I can do. And for a long time, you know, they really, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing that that was able to go on, as, that these things have been able to go on for as long as they have. And I guess we'll learn, conversely, kind of the, the degree to which it just hasn't started opening up in Exxon and DuPont and... And, and the regular corporate world, and that it's gonna. And that's why Amber's right. We're not done. <laughs> yeah, there's the hotel maids. There are the, 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 you know, administrative assistants at a big company. They're, you know. It's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And, and, and I do think that, you know, the, yeah, the reason that it comes out in these ways that have been coming out is because that's the stories that these are people we all know. And, and these are, you know, these stories have come out and caught fire because we know all these people because they are famous and, and yeah. And how do these, I mean, hopefully, and, and, and that's why I do think that it's like, that's, it's not bad that it's just these famous people because hopefully that will make somebody who's the head of a large hotel, you know, chain or whatever, like have a serious talk with all the people who work for them and have people say like this is if this has been happening to you you have to know that you can talk about it and and that it will be an example for people to know that they can that they can talk about it and that it won't be tolerated but but in these you know that's i don't know i'm 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 really optimistic that 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 can happen yeah and i hope that hmm, media will continue will will cover it in in smaller less spectacular famous 
arenas. Uh, yeah, I feel like the the fact that the coverage is going to come lately, I think, is empowering to more and more like like uh, Jenny Lumet today. You know, you know, if you're gonna come out and say something about about Russell Simmons, you know, you know, or Harvey Weinstein, you better hope someone's gonna write about it, or else, holy crap. <laughs> right, right. I know. My sister-in-law just texted me while we were talking, and is a uh, nine women accused Israel Horowitz, playwright and mentor of sexual misconduct, and it's somebody that she knows, you know, who was one of the accusers. Like, I just got this text. I know. So, yeah. Yeah. A, a last thing on these issues, uh, as someone who often you call yourself a, a a weirdo, an oddity, a, you know, you you know, not someone who, I I think what's important in society to speak loudly about is the difference between being a predator and being the word pervert is misused a lot lately. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Damn it, I'm a pervert, but I don't you know, we're all perverts, but we don't all inflict that on other people. I just wrote that in my novel. I wrote a line where she says because it was something about San Francisco's like sex nerd culture. You know, and she was like, we get it. You're a pervert. Guess what? Everybody is. Some people just don't talk about it. It's more inter- Because what's interesting about people is is what you don't know about what they want, you know? And and I, I that's so funny. I, I agree. I agree. I think that a lot of San Francisco sex nerd lifestylers will also agree that, yeah. It's just the rest of the world. I start thinking about, yeah, about famous people who I think people expect to get in trouble because they're kind of pervy. But that doesn't mean they, they, they do things to other people that other people don't want done to them. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the, like, yeah, that's why it's that's that's why also why it becomes so much more obvious that it's about power than it is about sex, you know, is that it's just like, oh yeah, Louis could have found people who were who wanted to watch him do that. No problem, you know? No problem. And we have to assume, uh, I've heard too many people on the radio and TV mostly men, but even women saying, well, it's not about gender, it's about power. And th- I, I don't even necessarily, I, that might be factual, but it's, it's kind of irrelevant because we can, we can argue about that after, after women have the power for a couple millennia. <laughs> I know, let's see what that looks like. Yeah, until then, the people who did the bad stuff have to go down. And, and yeah, yeah, you go for it. And, that, that I'm glad you say you're ready because I wanted to bring back one thing and that is when you were talking about you know the punk rock thing and and, and ah, being able to enjoy or want success and I I I I I think I look forward to seeing a little more of the uh, two two characters from from Yokohama uh, three way of the the Steve Elliott and Poe Bronson and you come out when this book comes out <laughs> so funny. Steve is weird because he's punk rock too. Yeah, but he knows how to enjoy and milk it. Oh yeah, I I called I emailed him before I wrote that piece. I was like, listen, I have this thing that I want to call Fucky Steve Elliot. I was like, it just you know, and he's like, great, no problem. He was fine with it. Um, yeah, Steve Steve's happy with anything branded <laughs> uh and he's a friend and i and i love him but he I, I i do try to think of him as an inspiration like if i get something that might be successful just freaking go with it boy i wonder what he has to say about everything going on these days 
I wonder if he's writing anything. Speaking of like pervert and power and relinquishing power. And... Right in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll drop him a line. He hemmed and hawed about coming on this show when it first started. Oh, really? That's funny. I've heard you say that a few times that people are like, that they're, they're weird about the topic. I think it's, I mean, it's a great topic. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to talk, to, talk about it. I think it's funny that some people assume like, well, I, I'm, I'm, that would be me saying that I, it's like, no, we're talking about this thing that affects all of the world. It's not about you. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think this is about me. This is about us having a conversation about your, uh, your podcast topic, you know? Well, I think it's hard when you hear that word not to think it's like a celebrity chat. Hmm. That's weird. That is like the last thing. I think that's a, I think that's, that's a, a marker of, of a certain kind of person if they think that that's what it is, you know? Cause it's like, I, Really? Like, that That didn't occur to me at all. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. There are two kind of people who aren't comfortable. There are the people who have a certain amount of success, but are like, oh, I don't, yeah, I feel kind of gross about it, and I'm not big enough. <laughs> and then there are people who are just my friends and neighbors, you know, like porch light type stories. And I've had a couple of them on, and I'm going to have some more. But a lot of them are like, well, I'll talk to you when I become famous. I'm like, well, that won't be the, that's not the point. Yeah, I'm not a bartender. I'm a writer. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. That was me. You know, it just feels like, ah, I don't know. I, I, I like that you're doing this. I think this is a good, it's a, it's a great, it's a great topic. Thanks. I just kind of feel like it's the first creative endeavor I've really committed to in a long time. So I'm, I'm staying with it and I'm, I learn things from it and I enjoy it. All, every piece of art I've ever made is just therapy for me. Oh my God. I love the therapist, by the way. Oh, Lois. She's a San Francisco person. Oh, she is? Oh, I'm so glad. I'll tell her. Yeah, tell her. Uh, yeah, we have to have another session soon. <laughs> uh, talking about the episodes with my, the, our staff psychotherapist, Lois Parkinson. I'm going to keep bugging you every time I'm down in the city and we're going to yeah, have coffee Yeah, at some later. point it is going to work out. I know it. And I want to get up there too. I want to, I've never been to visit all my peeps up there. And there's certainly, you know, another reason to get the book published. This is a great place for, for a book tour. Lots of colleges, lots of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Anything that came to your mind this week that I haven't, that we haven't talked about? That yeah. Let me see if there's anything on my little list here. Let's see. Bartending, pooping, novel, porch light, <laughs> Ron Hogan, Steve <laughs> Elliott. Yeah, I think I think we covered it all. Uh, me, Predator. Uh, um, thanks, Beth. I, this this has been so great. All right, Jamie. Great talking to you. Bye. Bye. To find the work of the wonderful Beth Lissick, please go to BethLissick.com. That's B-E-T-H-L-I-S-I-C-K. To find the first part of our conversation, which is episode 52, because there was one that came in between 52 and 54, and any other episodes of this show, please go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Coming up soon, we have former Playboy editorial director Chris Napolitano and comedian and Conan writer Laurie Kilmartin and much, much more. Ed Patnode is the engineer Pippa.io is our new stellar host. Our music is by Christian Kondari. 
This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.